Hello, my name is Bridger Pennington, and my father, John Pennington, is the author of the following audio recording entitled, What Happened to the Apostles? Years ago, my dad made a recording similar to this one and gave it to me to listen to. He was worried that if for some reason he died early in life, that his sons would not know of his love for the gospel. Some evenings before I went to sleep, instead of listening to music, I would listen to my dad talk about the gospel and interesting stories he had recorded. My dad talks about the Nicene Creed of 325 AD and the Emperor of Rome, whose name was Constantine. After listening to this many times, one day when I was 10 years old, my teacher in Sunday school asked if any of us have ever heard of the Nicene Creed. To the surprise of my teacher, I was able to explain what the Nicene Creed was and basically how Constantine was a big part of it coming into existence. This is why my dad has asked me to introduce this audio recording entitled, What Happened to the Apostles? Okay, let's get started. And the question we're going to try to answer today is, what happened to the apostles? Now, in order to fully understand what happened to the apostles, we must first start from a point of reference. Therefore, like a year. Um, And let's start from the year Jesus was born. Does anyone know what year Jesus was born? Was it the year zero? Is that the year Jesus took on a body of flesh and blood? The year zero? No, there's no year zero. The year zero does not exist. The answer is Jesus was born in 1 AD. The abbreviation AD means Anno Domini, which is translated the year of our Lord. Therefore, our starting point of reference is 1 AD. And the reason I bring this point up is that in many parts of the world, the birth date of Jesus is a disputed date. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. It was a fascinating trip, probably the best trip I've ever taken. While I was in Israel, I went on two tours. The first tour was given by a Jewish tour guide who continually pounded into his presentation over and over again all day long that King Herod, the king who ordered the killing of all the baby boys in Bethlehem, that king died in 4 BC. Then I went on another tour with an Islamic tour guide, and he also milled into his presentation about three or four times a day that King Herod died in 4 BC. Both of these two knowledgeable tour guides, both given great presentations, had to tell the Christian guys that were on their, you know, tour that there's something wrong with your calendar because the guy that ordered the death of Jesus as a baby, that guy, he died four years before Jesus was even supposed to be born. It must be a way for these two different religions, Jewish and Islamic, to tell the Christians that there's a problem with the Bible story of Jesus' birth. That the king who ordered the death of Jesus actually died four years before Jesus was even born. Now, I acknowledge that there is probably some errors in our modern-day calendar, and that 1 AD is not exactly the year that we think it is. But anyway, for today, we're going to use 1 AD as the year in our years that Jesus was born. And now as for the years before Jesus was born, they have a term called B.C., which means before Christ. And then they have a new term in the later years called B.C.E., before the Christian era. But it all means the same thing. So if Jesus was born in the year 1 A.D. and Jesus died at the age of 33, then Jesus died in the year 34 A.D. Just a quick note here, the word Jesus is a Greek name. If you went back in time, and if you went back to Israel, you wouldn't walk up to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, how are you? Because that wasn't his name. He didn't go by the word Jesus. The word Jesus is Greek, not Hebrew. 
His original name in the Hebrew was Joshua. But I'm not saying it right. A Middle Eastern person says the, the letter J with a H, like a Hashua. I can't say it correctly. But anyway, just to clarify, his original name was Hashua. Then it got translated into the Greek, into the word Jesus. Anyway, we kept the King James Version translation, and now we call him Jesus. Okay, so Jesus starts his ministry in approximately the year 31 AD. John the Baptist does baptize Jesus in the year 31 AD. John the Baptist was imprisoned and then killed. Then Jesus dies and is resurrected in the year 34 AD. And also in that year, one of his apostles die. The apostle that dies is Judas Iscariot. Well, he basically killed himself. There are two accounts of his death. One says that he committed suicide and hung himself from a tree. The other account says that he jumped off a cliff and he fell on some rocks and his insides burst open. Joseph Smith said both accounts are true, that he tried to hang himself off of a cliff on a tree and the branch broke and he fell onto some rocks and he burst open. And that's how he died. In the year 34 AD, Jesus Iscariot dies. The remaining 11 apostles come together and they have need to put another person in the 12 apostles. For some reason, 11 isn't good enough. They've got to have 12. The book of Acts explains that they had narrowed their choice down to two candidates. Their names were Matthias and Barsabas. Now, this is an important event. Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, and the apostles have been instructed to go preach the gospel to the whole world. But for some reason, they pause for a moment and make this assignment. They have 11, but they know they need 12. For some reason, a quorum of 11 apostles is an incomplete number. This vacancy causes a conference of the apostles and forces them to pursue these two men to join them as their apostleship in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, it says, And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the twelve apostles. Okay, let me ask you a question here. Casting of lots. Isn't that kind of strange that they're casting lots to see who the next apostle is? The apostles are saying, we know one of these men is supposed to be the next apostle, but we're not sure which one. So we're going to ask God to tell us by casting of lots. Now, casting of lots is kind of like throwing dice. It's not actually dice. They actually toss sticks in which whomever the stick lands on, that's God's will. And therefore, it's the choice for the 12th apostle. Okay, does this practice seem a little strange to anyone else? The first time I ever read about casting a lots, Nephi and his brethren were outside the city of Jerusalem and they cast lots. They were trying to decide the will of God by casting of lots. After reading about Nephi and also the 12 apostles using this method to define the will of God, I thought I needed to get a deeper understanding of this practice, especially since one of the apostles was chosen to his office using this form of selection. In that time period, it was probably an accepted way to define the will of God, but it just didn't sound right to me until I read this verse in Proverbs. This is Proverbs 
chapter 16, verse 33. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Now, I take from the scripture, in that day and time, if you wanted to know what Heavenly Father thought, and you weren't exactly sure, and you were confused, you'd say to Heavenly Father, I don't know, we're going to cast some lots, and whoever the lot falls upon, that will be your will. And we're praying to you that you'll do this for us. This process, although very strange to the reader of the Bible in the 21st century, was consistent, I believe, with the verse in Proverbs that says the Lord is in the disposing of the lots. In that time period, this would make perfect sense as to why the brothers of Nephi, outside of the city of Jerusalem, decided to cast lots. And it evidently made sense to Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the apostles, as they chose the new member. The point here is the apostles knew that they need to keep a quorum of the twelve. One died, and they needed a new member. They had to add another guy. That's the point I'm trying to make, that eleven members was insufficient and they knew it. Judas has died, and Matthias gets the lot and becomes the twelfth apostle. The apostles then start traveling all around the world, preaching the gospel. They went to places like Corinth, and they taught the Corinthians about Christ. They would baptize a congregation, grow the congregation, but before they left, they ordained a bishop and gave him charge over the congregation. The apostles would promise the bishop that they would keep in contact and write him letters and send him messages for further instructions. The apostles would travel to places like Ephesus, and they would teach the Ephesians and baptize them and grow a congregation. And before they left, they would ordain a bishop. This bishop, like the bishop of Corinth, would be given responsibility from the apostles to take care of the congregation in the belief of Christ. The apostles would travel to Rome and do the same thing. They would baptize Romans, and then they, before they left, they would call a bishop, the bishop of Rome. Then the apostles would travel to a place called Byzantine, and they'd baptize people there and then ordain a bishop. In each city or town that the apostles went to, they called a bishop of Rome, or a bishop of Corinth, or a bishop of Byzantine, or a bishop of Ephesus. That's how we know about these places, because they have letters from the apostle Paul to the Corinthians, the people who lived in Corinth. We have letters from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, the people who lived in Ephesus. He is writing these letters trying to give instructions to those bishops to keep on the track to follow Christ. This goes on for years and years, the Apostles teaching and baptizing and ordaining bishops and sending letters. Then in the year uh, 64 AD, the Apostle Peter dies. He's crucified by hanging upside down. He didn't feel worthy enough to die the same way his Lord died. So he asked the people to crucify him upside down, so they did. Why did they kill Peter? Peter is killed for teaching truth and for teaching about his conviction and belief in Jesus Christ. Now, let's say hypothetically, in 67 AD, the Bishop of Corinth dies. How did they get a new bishop? How did they get a new bishop in the first place? The apostles came and prayed and ordained a new bishop. So in 67 AD, What's the first step to getting a new bishop? The people of Corinth would send an email or <laughs> fax down to church headquarters. Well, no, no, in translation, that means they've sent a fast message to church headquarters. Probably by mule, then by boat, then by mule again. No doubt a very fast way to getting messages across in those days. 
They send a fast message to the apostles. The apostles come by, they pray, they find a man there, and they would lead and guide the congregation. And they ordain that bishop. Now, what about in the year 80 AD, the bishop of Ephesus dies? How do they get a new bishop? It's probably the same procedure. They send a fast message by mule, then by boat, then by mule again, and have an apostle come by and ordain a bishop. That is how all the original bishops were called, and that is how they get a replacement bishop, by having an apostle come by and ordain the bishop. What about when an apostle dies? How do they get a new apostle? The apostles knew they needed to keep a quorum of the twelve, but they are being persecuted and dying off. They're being killed off faster than they can get back together. They didn't have trains, planes, and automobiles like we have today. They couldn't get back fast enough because they were being killed off so fast. For example, the apostle Stephen is stoned to death. The apostle Peter was crucified upside down. These apostles couldn't keep a quorum of the twelve together. What was their crime? They were teaching truth. They were preaching truth. And truth was not surviving very well in this time and age. To combat this, the Lord Jesus Christ himself calls a new apostle. He chooses a man named Saul. Now, this Saul is believed to have been at the stoning of the apostle Stephen. Not only was he at the execution of Stephen, but this Saul is currently on the trek to hunt down and kill more apostles and execute them. The Lord speaks to Saul in the desert. And Saul is converted to Christ. And from that point on, Saul no longer went by the name of Saul, but went by the name of Paul. His new name was Paul. This Paul, who used to be named Saul, became the apostle that ended up writing a large part of the New Testament. However, even Paul was eventually killed by the influence of Christian haters. What was Paul's crime? Why did he deserve to die? It was that he told the truth. Truth is not surviving very well in this age of history. Okay, so the last apostle we hear about is the apostle John, or as we know him, John the Revelator. He wrote the book of Revelation in the year about 97 AD. So let's just round it off and say 100 AD is the last time we hear from him. Okay, so therefore, let's go on to the year 125 AD. And let's say the bishop of Ephesus dies. How do the Ephesians get a new bishop? There are no more apostles around. They couldn't send an email or fact down to church headquarters and have apostle come by and ordain them. How do they do it? How about in the year 132 AD, when the bishop of Corinth dies? How do the people of Corinth get a new bishop? At this point, the system changed because they couldn't do anything else. The congregations voted. They had an election. They basically said, okay, we have five men here. Which one should be bishop? They all took a vote, and the next day they had a new bishop. To really understand this, we need to understand the severity of the persecution of the Christians who are living in a Roman Empire who is hostile to their beliefs. This Roman Empire believed that Christians were enemies of the state. The Romans had a big coliseum. In modern times, we go to stadiums and we watch football games. But back then, the Romans went to the Colosseum and watched the Christians versus the Lions. The Christians were against the Lions, and I believe the Lions were undefeated. I don't think they ever lost. It was a gory time for Christians. They were being persecuted to the point of execution. Stephen is stoned to death. Peter is crucified upside down. 
If you are a Christian, they threw you in a coliseum and let lions go after you and eat you. I meant it was not a very good time for teaching truth. Okay, so let us fast forward to the year 325 AD. A significant thing happens. A man who was the emperor of Rome converted to Christianity. It says that he was in a battle and he saw a cross and they won the battle. And he attributed to winning the battle to Jesus Christ, and he became a Christian. By this time, Christianity had grown throughout the Roman Empire, despite the persecution. Think about it. For hundreds of years, Roman citizens would sit and watch Christians die in the Colosseum rather than deny their belief in Jesus Christ. I'm sure they were told repeatedly that Jesus Christ was a fraud, and if they would just agree to not believe him anymore, then they would live. Time and time again, Christians chose death and sealed their testimony with blood. This went on for hundreds of years. The stalwartness and conviction for Christ must have affected the people in the Colosseum. This refusal to deny Christ must have caused the average Roman citizen to investigate and inquire about the beliefs of the Christian faith. Who are these people who would die for their God? Therefore, by the year 325 AD, the emperor of Constantine accepts Christ as his Messiah. However, many people believe that Constantine really cared more about a very large piece of real estate called the Roman Empire than he did about Jesus Christ. Many scholars believe converting to Christianity was a very well-thought-out vehicle to unite the fragmented Roman Empire. Constantine knew the power and effects religions have on people. He needed them to move as one, and therefore, he led his empire into the acceptance of Jesus the Christ. Now listen, the following thing I'm going to do is a little hypothetical thing, but it's to prove a point. Okay, here we go. In order to investigate this new religion, Constantine talked to the Bishop of Rome and said, Bishop of Rome, tell me about baptism. And the Bishop of Rome says, well, we sprinkle people with water. We put a drop on their forehead and we call them, they're baptized. Then Constantine, you know, goes to the Bishop of Ephesus and asks him the same thing. Tell me about baptism. The Bishop of Ephesus basically said that the physical ordinance of baptism really doesn't matter. If you believe in your heart, then you're baptized. So Constantine goes to the Bishop of Corinth. Bishop of Corinth, tell me about baptism. Well, we baptize by dipping people all the way under the water and bringing them back up out of the water because that's the way we believe Jesus Christ was baptized. Constantine then talks to the Bishop of Byzantine. And the Bishop of Byzantine says, we pour water on the forehead and that's how we baptize. The point here I'm trying to make is that in 325 AD, the Christian world was drifting apart on some of the most basic ordinances and practices. This worried Constantine. If you have a division in religion, it might lead to different factions, which might lead to unrest and even dissent. He's trying to unite a world's only superpower at the time, called the Roman Empire. Constantine says he converts to Christianity, but he believes that all the bishops must somehow agree on the same doctrine. So he invites them. Well, he really didn't invite them. He basically ordered them to come to Nicaea, some 350 of them, to come to a place called Nicaea. Constantine mandates to the bishops to meet in Nicaea and to not leave Nicaea until they agree on one doctrine. 
That is, the bishops could not return home until they agree on one unified set of beliefs and practices. The bishops meet day after day. For about two years, they can't agree. One bishop doesn't agree on this, and one bishop doesn't agree on that. They debate and argue different points of Scripture until they realize that they're never going to agree on everything. So what can they do? How can they please their emperor and finally return to their homes? They are in a no-win battle, and they're never going to see eye-to-eye on every Scripture point. So the bishops draft and publish a written statement which becomes known as the Nicene Creed. This is in 325 AD. The Nicene Creed says that there is one God, but there are three. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. There is three in one and one in three. And this fits perfectly for the bishops because it is a very ambiguous statement. It's so ambiguous that it allows the bishops to go back to their parishes and interpret the Godhead as a mystery along with other doctrines. For example, God is so big that he can fill the universe, but so small he can dwell in a man's heart. This enables the bishops to please Constantine by allowing each bishop to teach their version and interpretation of what the Nicene Creed says. Ambiguous statements always allow the interpreter to come up with a different conclusion and thus foster decades and even centuries of conjecture. Constantine's happy the Nicene Creed came into existence as an official statement. Now, over the years, the Bishop of Rome thought that he was kind of the senior bishop. Naturally, because the Roman Empire was founded in Rome, he would write letters to the other Roman bishops and other bishops around the region, telling them what they should do and what they shouldn't do. However, there was a problem. When Constantine became emperor, he moved the capital of the Roman Empire from the city of Rome to the city of Byzantine and changed the name of the city of Byzantine to the name of Constantinople. Now, Constantinople was the capital, and naturally, the bishop of Constantinople felt that he was the senior bishop. He was the closest to the emperor, and when that bishop had something to say, I can imagine every ear stretching to listen to that statement. Eventually, the city of Constantinople went through another name change, and today is called the city of Istanbul. Therefore, the city that was called Byzantine was changed to Constantinople, and then was eventually changed to Istanbul. It's the same city, the same place. It just has three different name changes. This uh, who is the senior bishop thing went on for years and years. Both bishops tried to concentrate their influence. The bishop of Rome would gather the bishops around him, and the bishop of Constantinople gathered the bishops around him. The Bishop of Rome says to the Bishop of Constantinople, You can't tell me what to do. I'm a Bishop of Rome, and I'm on the same level as you. And conversely, the Bishop of Constantinople feels the same way. You're not bigger than me. You can't tell me what to do. I'm not your subordinate. We are all bishops, and we're all on the same level. This went on for hundreds of years. And finally, there is a division in the religion. And that is where the religion splits. One faction became the Roman Catholic Church, and the other faction became the Greek Orthodox Church. The bishops that were around and believed the Bishop of Constantinople became the Greek Orthodox, and the bishops that were around the Bishop of Rome became the Roman Catholic. Christianity was formed in the year 31 AD and was born within the most powerful country on earth. This country was the superpower of their time, and if God wanted his religion to grow, 
then he certainly knew which country to place it in, a country that had influence over massive areas of earth, and a country that had the best roads, the largest navy for fast and swift communication, a country with the greatest wealth per capita of any country on earth, and the largest and most powerful armies, the Roman Empire. It would be a fantastic chess move to place your religion inside this country for maximum growth worldwide. Okay, so if you went back in time to the 10th century AD, a thousand years after Christ, which church would you want to be involved with? Which church had all the true doctrines of Christ's church? Now, I'm not saying these churches are bad churches. I personally believe that the Pope of the Catholic Church in the 21st century is a really, really righteous man that has Christ-like charity in his heart. I also believe that the Archbishop of the Greek Orthodox Church in the 21st century is a really, really righteous man that has Christ-like charity in his heart. They're both trying to lead as many people to the teachings of Jesus Christ as they can. Both of these men are great men. I believe from their point of view, they do not believe that the Latter-day Saints have the correct doctrine of Jesus Christ. And I, as a member of the LDS Church, do not believe that they have the fullness of the gospel. But what is beautiful about this situation and this scenario is that we're all trying to lead people to Jesus Christ, and I think that is fantastic. But if I went back in time to 1000 AD, I'm not sure I know which church I would join. Both the Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox, in my opinion, would be just as great as the other and just as good as the other. Both would do their best to teach me about the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, I believe by the time 1000 AD rolls around that there was sort of a falling away of the original doctrine of Christ. Now, Mormons believe that Joseph Smith in the early 19th century restored the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, by definition, if there is a restoration of doctrine, then there must have been a falling away. The New Testament in the book of 2 Thessalonians predicts this falling away. And let me quote this. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through and it says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first." Through those periods of time when there's a falling away, now not a turning away, but a falling away of certain doctrines of gospel. And that's why there needed to be a restoration. The book of Timothy in the New Testament also supports this falling away concept. Now this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, and it says, and I quote, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Okay, unquote. Again, let me reemphasize this. This is a falling away, not a turning away. The church starts with Christ in 31 AD and goes through this time period, and there's a falling away just like 2 Thessalonians predicts. 
If 2 Thessalonians is a true scripture, then it must require a restoration of the doctrine that fell away. For example, let's go back to how baptisms are performed. Currently, some religions sprinkle when they baptize, and some say you don't even need to baptize at all, that if you believe in your heart, the baptism is already done. Some religions say that you must be dipped or immersed yourself completely underwater to be baptized correctly. Mormons believe that you must be dipped and completely immersed underwater. And why do we have to put the person all the way under the water? What's the reason? Why do we think that's the correct way? Because we believe that Jesus Christ was baptized that way. In the book of John, it talks about a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night and asked him what he needed to do to go to the kingdom of heaven. Well, Nicodemus, this is what you need to do. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Question mark. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Unquote. So, no doubt that you need to be baptized to enter the kingdom of God. That's a requirement that Jesus Christ says you must do. But what's the proper way to get baptized? How do you do it? How do you get it done? Jesus is speaking in the first person here, and John writes it down. Now, the apostle John speaking about John the Baptist in the book of John says this. This is in chapter 3, verse 23. John says about John the Baptist, And John was also baptizing at Enon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Hmm. Because there was much water there. If John was baptizing by pouring a little bit of water on your forehead, the statement, because there was much water there, would not have to have been written into the Bible. The very word baptize literally translated means to dip or to immerse. If the word actually means to dip or immerse, and John needs much water to baptize, then how did so many religions fall away from this literal translation of the Bible? Furthermore, being immersed completely in water has some interesting representations and relates to the teachings of Christ when he told Nicodemus that he had to be born again. Think about this. You are standing there in an element called H2O, water, and you are allowing yourself to be immersed into that element, and that element can take away your life. That is, if you continue to linger at a very long periods of time in H2O, you will die. But once you are raised up out of that element, you have a new life and are born again as Christ told Nicodemus to do. My definition of Christianity is very different than a lot of other religions. I've had people tell me that if I don't believe in the Nicene Creed, then I'm not a Christian. This is not logical to me. I do not understand it. I believe there are three basic things that you need to be considered to be a Christian. Number one. You have to believe that Jesus Christ suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane for you. Number two, you have to believe that Jesus Christ gave his life for you freely. Number three, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is resurrected today and is alive today and is your Savior. If you believe those three things, I believe you're a Christian. Even if you're baptized or not, I still believe you're a Christian. 
If you truly and wholeheartedly believe those three things, how could anyone else in the world label you anything but a Christian? However, Jesus himself said that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. These are the words of Christ himself. So you really can't argue with them. It's Jesus being quoted from the Bible. So if you're standing in the waters of baptism and you're saying to yourself, when I come up out of these waters, I'm going to be clean from my previous life. I'm taking on Jesus Christ as my personal savior. I'm going to emulate and try to become like him. I'm going to try to follow his commandments and go forward and walk and talk and try to direct my life and his teachings. It's a similitude of you laying your life down and coming up out of that water with a new life as a follower of Christ, just as Christ did on that Sunday morning more than two millennia ago. When I'm baptized, I am in a similitude laying down my life for Jesus, and when I come back up, I will devote my life to his teachings. This is a powerful turning point in many lives and followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's fast forward in time and go to the mid-1500s. How is truth surviving? Is it flourishing? Are people walking around speaking truth, and when truth is spoken, everyone's going, yeah, that's right, I believe that. The answer is no. Truth's not doing very well in the mid-1500s. Let me tell you about a man named Copernicus. He's a brilliant man. He says, you know, I've been doing a lot of studying. I've studied how the earth is not in the center of the universe. Also, I've discovered that the sun does not go around the earth, but the earth goes around the sun. Copernicus is teaching truth, but it didn't matter. They didn't believe him. They called him a heretic. They called him a liar. They told him that if he believed in these kind of things, that he did not believe in the Bible and that he was a heretic. They threatened him to retract his theory or they would excommunicate him from his religion for telling these falsehoods or in reality for telling the truth. Copernicus was threatened and persecuted for what? For telling the truth. Okay. The great reformer Martin Luther basically said, I'm just doing my best, but I don't believe the correct and original doctrines of Christ are being taught. So Martin Luther protested and started the Protestant religions. That is how the name Protestant came into existence, by the people protesting against the current religion teachings of the time. Now, one of my friends commented to me once that he saw that there was no need for Joseph Smith to restore the fullness of the gospel of the earth. The doctrines and truths were surviving very well, and there was no need for restoration. Now, I replied and said that the Apostle Timothy in the book of the New Testament does not agree with you. Martin Luther, the great reformer, does not agree with you. And a man named William Tyndale, who died in the year 1536 AD, would not agree with you either. Of course, my friend then inquired, you know, who's William Tyndale? I told him that William Tyndale was imprisoned for over a year, then went to trial and lost, and then was sentenced to death by the burning of a stake. My friend then asked, uh, what horrible thing did William Tyndale do that caused him to be burned at the stake? The answer is, he translated the Bible from Hebrew and the Greek languages into English language, and then he published it. That's what he did. That's it. And as you can see, the laws of England in the year 1536 somewhat emulated the Romans. Was truth surviving very well for William Tyndale? Do you think there was a need for a restoration? This is how the United States got started. People were living in Europe and couldn't practice their religion the way they wanted to practice it. 
So they said, wait a minute. If I get on a boat and go across the ocean, I can worship the way I want to worship? So they started coming to America. And finally, in the year 1776, a country is finally founded on the basis that each individual has the right to believe and worship the way they want to worship, as long as it doesn't affect or hurt anyone else. What a great concept. Freedom of religion. No persecuting a man for his religious beliefs. No killing of Christians for translating Bibles, for believing in Christ. No persecution for saying the sun does not go around the earth and the earth is not in the center of the universe. In the year 1776 AD, there's a country finally founded. But they were not able to, you know, secure this country for a few more years, about five more years. They had to go to war, but about the year 1781 AD, a country is finally secured and established on the premium of freedom for all and freedom of religion for all. Now, here's the question for you. Once a country is finally formed that guarantees freedom of religion, how long does it take God to put Joseph Smith on the planet inside of this newly founded country? The answer is only about 25 years. God doesn't waste much time at all. Joseph was born in the year 1805, and by 1829, the priesthood was restored to the earth by heavenly visitations from some of the original apostles. The Melchizedek priesthood was given to Joseph Smith by some of the original apostles, the resurrected Peter, James, and John. God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, restored the fullness of the gospel to the earth through Joseph Smith. These heavenly beings gave instructions for 12 new modern-day apostles to be called and set apart. This new quorum of the 12 apostles was given the mandate to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. The mandate was received by these 12 men, and they sent missionaries to all parts of the world. But the the story goes on. Joseph Smith was killed in the year 1844. And by the year 1847 A.D., Brigham Young, one of the modern-day apostles, led the Latter-day Saint Christians to a place outside of the United States. They had to leave a country which was founded on the basis of freedom of religion because that country could not, at the time, guarantee that freedom to the Latter-day Saint Christians. Brigham Young knew that he had to go outside of that country, and therefore he moved from the borders of the United States of America to the western desert location next to a great lake filled with salt water. The Latter-day Saints were out there in the wilderness. They were setting up the West. But they didn't go all the way to California where the land was rich and fertile. No, they went to a middle mountain region, a location with high mountains surrounding a high western valley. And they made a life for themselves and became a people. Even with their meager means, these New Age apostles managed to continue to send missionaries throughout the world telling of the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the restoration of the gospel. Now, after many years of living in the high mountain place, these Latter-day Saints applied for their settlements and their territory to become a state of the union of the United States of America. They wanted their new state to be named Deseret, after a word in the Book of Mormon that meant honeybee or industry. However, now this is important, however, When they petitioned the U.S. Congress two times to become a state, they were denied. 
Now, eventually, the United States and the United States Congress granted them statehood, but denied their petition to be named Deseret. The U.S. Congress said that their name of this new state would be called the State of Utah. Now, by naming this new state of the Union, the United States Congress might have fulfilled a prophecy from the Old Testament. Let's read in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 2. And this is what it says. I'll quote here. And it came to pass that in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Unquote. The word Utah is a Native American Indian word derived from the tribe of the Ute Indian language. The word Utah directly translated from the Ute Indian language into the English language and literally means tops of the mountains or peaks of the mountains. This is the literal translation of the word Utah. So, if we were translating the Bible into the Ute Indian language, it could say this. This is Isaiah 2.2. And it shall come to pass that in the last days the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in Utah and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. The word Utah means tops of the mountains or peaks of the mountains. I believe what happened here is that the U.S. Congress fulfilled a prophecy from Isaiah that was written thousands of years ago. Okay, let me make a parallel here. In the Roman era, God formed Christianity inside one of the most powerful nations on the earth, and it took about 300 years for it to go mainstream with Constantine being the emperor. In modern times, God also restored the gospel inside of a country that was to become the only world superpower. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was placed inside of the United States of America by a defined plan. The influences of the USA on the world stage is unprecedented and enhances the abilities of the Latter-day Saints to proclaim the message that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus' plan of salvation. Currently, the LDS Church is the fourth largest religion inside of the most powerful nation on the earth. The LDS Church is also the fastest-growing church in the United States of America. A few years ago, Time Magazine did a feature story on the Mormons. The article said that the Mormons were the booming religion. When most of their faiths inside the United States were actually shrinking in numbers, the Latter-day Saints were growing faster than any other religion in the country. Mormons are unique from all other major religions in that they did not break away or divide from a previous church. They originated their faith in the United States of America with a new set of revelations from God. At any given time, there's approximately 50,000 to 60,000 full-time missionaries worldwide teaching about Jesus Christ. Okay, now get this. Each one of these full-time missionaries is under the direction of a mission president for a particular region of the world. And that mission president, along with the missionaries, are under the direction of one of the 12 modern-day apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, what happened to the apostles? They are alive and well, operating their missionary effort to the world from the tops of the mountains and doing what apostles do best. They are currently spreading the message of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of all mankind. He is the Son of God, the only begotten, who broke the bonds of death to become resurrected. 
these modern-day apostles sent missionaries to my home many years ago to teach me about Jesus Christ. Since then, I have committed my life to help spread this message of Christ. Following the teachings of Jesus Christ is a very rewarding thing. And when you have the strength of the apostles behind you, it becomes a charity of true love for others. Once you find this thing they call charity, it becomes impossible to contain. Jesus is the Christ. If you have any doubts, you might want to read some of the books that the apostles wrote. Their best sellers, the books of Matthew, Mark, John, and Peter could really improve your life. Words written by an apostle can become a life-changing event for you. These words have changed millions and millions of people's lives for the better, and they can do it for you too. You will not regret it. It was one of the best decisions of my life, and I say these things in the name of my Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a correction that needs to be addressed. The author mistakenly referred to Stephen as being one of the original 12 apostles. This was a mistake. Stephen was a disciple of Christ and probably a deacon or a member of the 70, but he was not an apostle. For more great audio podcasts like this, please visit www.johnspenningtonjr.com. That's www.johnspenningtonjr.com.